Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such a pleasure every week to sit down with some of Utah's youth and ask them about the stories of the week and get their perspective on what's going on in the world. And this week, I am joined by Gwenlian, Sydney, and Hunter. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Uh, good to see all of you. I want to start uh, with this interesting story about Facebook and what they're doing with exempting political ads from their policy of a ban on making false claims. So they've decided they're not, Gwenlian, going to, um, they're not going to take a look at political ads and go through them and decide this is false and this is not, as they might with other ads on Facebook. And I read just this morning that some of their employees are quite upset about this and actually wrote to Mark Zuckerberg complaining about this stance. When you look at at Facebook's overall role and their decision to not um, take this stance regarding political ads, what what's your thought? Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. I think it's something that's kind of hard to regulate because when you get into um, the political world, there's lots of very controversial and very, um, very argument causing, you know, very <sighs> topics that will make people um, be in conflict with each other. Um, and so when you have people regulating uh, the media around politics, I think it's really hard to separate people actually trying to weed out the false claims from people who are doing it for political reasons and to support their political party. So you'd be concerned about those who are making the decision about this is false and this is not, that they might be doing so for political reason. Yes. I see. What do you make of it, Cindy? Cindy. Well, I think there's really like two ways that you can look at this situation. And the first the first way I would say is the reason that Facebook is doing this so that people can, you know, can know exactly what the cam- candidates are telling them and exactly what their political ads are. Um, but I think that because they have this policy on all other ads, it could actually backfire on them because no one is because people are just assume that Facebook is, in fact, fact-checking these these decisions. And if people have that in the back of their mind, like all, all, all other ads are being fact-checked, then these ones must be correct, too. Then I think there could be a lack of investigation to see what is true and what isn't true. And I think that could end up backfiring so that people aren't actually informed about what is actually true and not. Do you think people assume what they see on Facebook is true? 
I think so. I well, I wouldn't say. I think it's a general rule that people do. I think they see something online and they just assume that it's correct. However, there. I mean, there of course are people who do their research, but I think that there are a major number of people who who don't do that. Mm, unfortunately, mm-hmm. Wait, what do you make of this, Hunter? Um, I think that it's probably important for them to fact check. Um, all of it if they're going to fact check some so that they make sure that all their information is correct and not just half of it so that people instead of just assuming that um, that the information is true that it actually is true so you would put political ads in the same boat with an ad for cars or shampoo or food so if you're going to make a claim that three out of five dentists recommend this tooth- toothpaste, it has to be three out of five dentists. If that has to be true, you would also put that the same standard for political ads. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Hmm. Um, any other thoughts on this? If you worked for Facebook, coming back to you with one follow-up, Hunter, if you worked for Facebook, would you complain at this uh, policy? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a difficult question, isn't it? Yes, it because is. Because this is your employer, and you don't want to risk your job. But some, a small percentage, but some of the employees of Facebook have let it be known that they feel uh, they feel frustrated with this policy. Um, okay. Uh, moving on, unless there's any other thoughts on this topic. Um, in fact, I'm moving on to a difficult one um, there was just a tragedy, tragedy involving what looks like human trafficking in England, where they found a, a truck that was filled with people from, I think there were some from Vietnam, perhaps some from China. I'm not exactly sure the origin of all of the people in this truck. But we know that this goes on, uh, in uh, that people from different countries, from from China, from Vietnam, from Ecuador, from other countries, are so desperate to leave their country that they will risk their lives in any number of ways to get to places like the United Kingdom where this happened or to the United States. Um, When you see a story like that, in this case, I think 39 people were found dead. When you see a story like that, Sydney, what goes through your mind? Well, it really, I mean, it's really... It's just heartbreaking, to say the least, you know, that people have that while we're here, you know, talking in this room, there are people out there trying to get away from their countries or being trafficking. Like, it's just such a scary thought that while we're safe in our homes, there are people who are not safe and who are going through that. And those are all those are all real people. And it's just it's very disheartening to know that that goes on um, in our country and in other countries. And so it's really, I think, just it just takes an emotional toll on me whenever I read stories like that. Mm. Mm. Do you think? Do you think there is more of a responsibility on the citizens of the world to do something? And is that just government, or is that all of us? I think to some extent we all have a responsibility to be working towards ending this because it really is such a terrible thing that people are going through. Um, and so to what extent, I'm not sure, but I think that to some extent we all should have a role in, in helping stop this, just like we help stop other other problems as well. Mm. What do you say, Hunter? Um, like, it's terrible, especially when you realize that if they're willing to, like, 
risk their lives to get out of their country, um, then how much do they want to be in the United States? And if if that's how they feel, then I feel that other people, other governments need to step it up um, so that they, so that people aren't willing to go through death to leave. I've, I've asked that question before. I, I try to imagine, what if you were in the government of a country that people are willing to die to leave? Wouldn't you do some sort of self-reflection? What are we doing wrong that people are willing to risk their lives to get away from here? And yet there doesn't seem to be that kind of, or at least not from where we're sitting. Why are they not doing that? Or do they just not care? I feel like there's got to be some level of care as if people are leaving their country, then those are their citizens. It's, but I also think that if, if there hasn't been anything done so far, then there's also got to be a level of apathy that they don't care. Mm. Or, or, or Lee, do you think that they're just not capable of improving their circumstances? How, how, what comes to your mind when you see this? Well, I think if we're talking about um, the duty that people have to stop things like this, let me say, is it the people's duty, is it the government's duty, and what level of effort should we be putting in to stop this? I think a big part of it is that a lot of people don't realize how much influence just ordinary people have on the world and how much influence we can have if we go and talk to people about it. And I think a lot of the times things like this, like human trafficking, go unnoticed. I mean, I don't think a lot of people in the United States think about that an awful lot. And it might be partly because we don't hear about it. Um, And I remember the article that you said that I was reading and said this happens often. You know, this happens at least yearly, sometimes monthly in places like the UK, there will be people found dead because they were trying to get out of their country. And I want to, I want to ask, like, how much of this are we paying attention to, um, let alone addressing and trying to stop? Like, are we even noticing it? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up, that we and our voices do matter. What we educate ourselves about, what we share on social media that has factual basis, what we learn about, we then, it's incumbent upon us then to share good information to talk about and then to do something about with within our sphere of influence, I think Stephen Covey used to say, within our sphere of influence. Um, thank you for letting me bring up such a difficult uh, topic. But I know that your generation is interested in and capable of grasping difficult topics. So um, I wanted to share that with you. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, can we talk about education since this is something that you're definitely focused on? Um, when the former governor of Florida was here recently, Jeb Bush, he was talking about how we need to change our educational system in a pretty drastic way. This was, these were his opinions. He said um, that if we don't change, if we don't become more forward thinking in the very near future, that there will be severe consequences, that we're not, and I'm, I'm really oversimplifying here, that if we don't look 10 years down the road, and begin to teach students toward that goal that will have real consequences. Um, I don't know. If you could change anything in the educational system, Hunter, and as a, a person who's in the educational system, I thought you might be, the, all three of you, uniquely qualified to comment <laughs> on how, uh, how effective it is. What would you change, or how would you like to comment on this? 
Um, I think that something does need to change. Um, but I, I also believe that even now there are still, um, like you can still be successful with the education that we have today. And I think that maybe switching the focus from things like tests or tests or lectures and stuff that we bring in more interactive learning, such as simulations. I think that's so interesting. Over to you, Gwenlian. One thing I do think is that you learn a lot of things on, like, academic knowledge in school. And one thing that I've heard a lot of people talk about is they wish they'd learn things like, how do you pay for a parking ticket? You know, how do you file tax returns? How do you do such and such things in the real world that you don't ever learn in school and you just have to kind of figure out, you know, how what's appropriate for a job interview? Things like that that people aren't being taught in schools that they wish they had learned. I just had to laugh when you said that because truly I, I did not know how to file a tax return until I sort of self-taught myself and probably made mistakes along the way in the beginning. And I didn't learn that in school. But we should teach that in school. If they teach it now, someone let someone call me and let me know because I didn't <laughs> learn that. That's fascinating. Continue. Yeah, and I think um, if we're learning things like math that are obviously applicable to our lives, but I think at some point um, where you're going into a more specialized part of a subject, you should definitely have the option to like say, okay, I don't think that this is going to be applicable to me. Like personally, if we're talking about math, I think everybody should learn algebra. But beyond that, I don't know if everybody needs to have that information. So I think definitely if we're talking about standardized testing and making it so it's an equal ground for all students, I also think that there should be a point where we're saying what do our students actually need to learn, what do they want to learn, and what should we be providing them at a level like this. Do you agree with with Hunter about standardized testing not not being, I mean, because I'm, I'm Am I re- putting words in your mouth that standardized testing does not perform a function for you that is valuable? Overall, yeah, I think it, they need to be changed. They need to be changed. Are you agreeing with that? I sure think that's an interesting topic because standardized testing, I think, has a good outlook. It's trying to put kids on the same level. But on the same, in the same way, um, not all kids learn in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have different ways of looking at things and different ways of solving problems. So I think while it was created to provide a base for everybody to be on the same level, it's really gone against that. So I think standardized testing does need to be changed. And if we could see it as the merit of the student based on the way that they look at things instead of the way that they solve school tests, I think that would drastically improve our education and, system. And now I hear that the teachers spend so much time teaching for the test and, and, and how much time is spent actually administering the test and how much anxiety around the test and, and then how much um, actual labeling takes place as a result of the test. That may or may not be accurate. I'm not sure if you agree with any of that. Speak to me about your opinion, Sydney. No, I definitely, I definitely agree with the stigma around testing. You know, it's like what your score is on a specific test, especially standardized tests like the ACT. You know, what your score is can often be a big part of your identity and how smart you are. When in reality, the ACT doesn't necessarily test how smart you are, but your logical thinking skills or how good you are at taking tests. And I think that there are other types of intelligence that schools are not considering. You know, there could be people who are really good socially. You know, they their intelligence is more socially 
um, than maybe academically. And I think that we need to be changing schools to accommodate all different kinds of intelligence and not just the people who are good at math, English, reading and writing, Mm. because there's a lot more to life than being able to do calculus math or being able to write a 15 page essay. And so I think we really to condense it all, we just need to bring school back to being about the student and not about like the individual student and not the student as a whole. Hmm. Any other thoughts you want to add to that, Hunter? Yeah, like there are important elements to standardized testing, but they shouldn't be the main focus. And I feel that if we if we just switch our focus to something more productive and more relevant to actual daily lives, then we would probably be much more effective. Yes. Should college athletes be allowed to make money? Gwenlian. Hmm. Certainly universities make money from them. Yes, yes. By the millions of dollars. And so are are they, you know, we make money from them. Should they be allowed to make money themselves as they're doing now in California and Florida is considering it? I mean, that is going to throw a wrench in the works big time. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no. Um, I think it's an interesting topic because obviously they're putting a lot of effort into being on their school team. They're putting a lot of effort into trying to be their best at the sport. But at the point where you're saying, okay, this person is paying to go to college to play this sport, and they're also earning money from this sport, what's the real purpose of it? Like, if you go to college and you're playing a sport there and your intent is to go and get educated, um, if we're going to pay college athletes to play their sport, are we also going to pay college research teams? Are we also going to pay the other people that are participating in activities in college that aren't athletic? And what's the difference there? Devil's advocate, the difference is they bring millions of dollars to the university. But why are we favoring the people who bring more money into the university over the other people whose subjects are equal? It's, it's a terrific argument. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that there, there, there isn't a, a moral equality the only difference is is that you know NCAA in games and esports is making so much money off these kids' names. Oh, for sure. And they can't qualify to make anything. But I hear your argument. I do, and I and I'm not sure it should change because it will screw so many things up if it does change. What do you say, Sydney? So I think it's kind of a tricky situation. You, know, you have to look at both sides because the reality is that these kids are not being like the college athletes. They're not making any money, but they're bringing so, so much money to these these colleges. Um, and not only do they they're going to school full time, they're playing football full time. And then they also have living expenses that they have to do. So do we expect them to be getting part time jobs while they're going to school and going to football practice? And so I think that to some extent, it almost makes sense that they should be allowed to make money because um, because they have to be able to afford their own living expenses. And, and football and school does take a significant portion of their time. That's about their life. But then at the end of the day, the reality is that they are college football players. They're amateurs still. Um, and their focus should be more on school rather than on getting paid for football. And I think that when we pay football players, that can that can kind of distort the whole environment around it, and could be unfair to some students as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would happen to the 
to the whole amateur, the idea of the amateur athlete if this happens. What's your opinion, Hunter? I think that since colleges are making so much money off of them, then they need to be paid at least a little bit. But at the same time, they're they, they are there to learn. And if kids are trying to get into college football not to learn but to make money while they're at school, I don't think that's right. But I do think that if, if colleges are going to be making millions of dollars off of them, then they should at least get some of that back. Maybe if they even have to defer the, the money, but they should get some money. What would you think about that if they got the money, but they couldn't have access to it until some later date? Or is that just messing with it and they just ought to have access? I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I, I think that would be all right. I think another idea would be if the money that they were making might have actually go towards paying for college. Interesting. This is Through Their Eyes on KSL News Radio. My guests this week are Sydney, Gwenlian, and Hunter, and we're talking about a number of different topics. Can I bring up a, a difficult topic, and that is the impeachment inquiry uh, before the House of Representatives? And we've seen, um, well, all we've seen are the opening statements of a couple of the um, individuals who have testified because the hearings have been closed so far. Um, as of the time that this uh, that we're recording this, no vote has been taken in the House, a general vote to approve of the inquiry, um, al- although it, uh, a judge did decide that the, that the inquiry was legal, at least a federal judge decided that last week. So I want to ask you, um, based on what you've seen so far, what do you think about the impeachment process? I'll start with you. This is a tough one, I know. This, this is a tough one, you know, because there's a lot of information that we don't have. And so trying to think of whether or not Trump should or should not be impeached, it's difficult because we really don't have all the information. But based off what we do, I, you know, I don't know if I, should, if I could reasonably say that I think he should or should not. But I do believe that um, there is a high probability that he will be impeached. However, I don't I do not think that he'll end up being removed from office. So he'll be impeached by the House. But you don't see that uh, carrying over to the Senate and his being actually impeached by the Senate. Senate. I don't know. I don't think that I think there's a possibility, but I don't think um, it's very probable that that will end up happening. How do you understand this, Hunter? I honestly think that because of the. Because the hearings are not open to the public, there's a lot that we can't decide. And I personally do not think that I would be able to decide whether Trump should be impeached or not without being able to hear what's going on in those hearings. And I think that if – but I also agree with Sidney that I don't think he will be – I think he will be impeached by the House, but I do not think – I think that he will be acquitted by the Senate. Okay. Do you share that feeling, Gwenlian? Um, I'm not really sure, but one thing that really does interest me is the motivation behind the impeachment, and there's a lot that we don't know, clearly, as Sidney and Hunter have said, like, we don't know what goes on in the hearing, we don't really know what went on behind the scenes of the reason why he's being impeached, um, but I want to talk about, like, political reasoning behind it. There was a president that was impeached over a similar accusation to Trump of being, having improper foreign relations, but um, in their case, it wasn't really that anybody actually cared about the foreign relations. It was that they wanted him out of office because he was a Democrat. 
Um, and so I think definitely when we're going into impeachment and it's becoming more and more of a problem in the modern political world is that people are so polarized and so hateful toward the other side of the argument that they no longer care about the actual corruption of the president and whether he's actually done something wrong and care more about removing him from office because they don't agree with the things he's done as president. Do you share that belief, Sydney? You know, I think that actually could have a big part of um, of why the impeachment is done is just the, like the politics around it. And I really think that we need to take a step back from the, our, all, all of our political views and really just see the situation for the situation that it is and make our decision about impeachment based off of that and rather our own feelings about whether we like President Trump or not. Mm. Do, you sh- do you share Gwendolyn's opinion? Uh, I thought that was fascinating, Hunter. Um, I think to to an extent, I don't think that people are going to impeach a president just because they don't like the things he is doing unless like it's very drastic. But at that point, if it's very drastic, then most of the nation probably won't like what he's doing. And then he probably deserves to be impeached in that case. But I don't think that that's the case here. Can I ask a question that's sort of related to this? Um, and, and I guess that this question comes from language that I've heard so much recently about um, are politicians doing their duty? You know, is it their duty to impeach President Trump? Is it the president's duty to behave in a certain way? I, he- I hear that word duty so much. And then, um, so I've, I've been thinking about what is the role or the duty of elected officials. And then we'll hear the word duty often um, vis-a-vis the military or, um, or law enforcement. What is their duty? They're being called to duty. And so I started thinking about, and this I have to give credit to my colleague Boyd Matheson, who talks a lot about how, uh, how problems are not fixed at the government level, that they're not fixed at the federal government level, they're not fixed at the state government level, that they are often fixed at the individual level in the family, in the community. So that got me at asking myself, this this is a very long preamble to a question, um, that got me asking, what is my duty? So I'm constantly criticizing and analyzing the duty of others and whether they're performing their duty well. I want to ask myself, what is my duty? And am I living up to my duty? So I want to know what you think your duty is now that's you're very young people to to be asking that question of, but I don't think you're too young to ask the question of. So may, may I start with you, Gwendolyn? What do you see yourself as having a duty, and if so, what is it? We've talked about um, empathy and apathy a lot. I think during um, during this podcast today, we talked about it during human trafficking. Like, how much do we care? How much empathy and apathy is there on the government level and on the individual level? And I think. Um, to recognize the duty that we have as citizens toward each other and toward ourselves, we also have to recognize what it is that we're fighting for. Um, as citizens of the United States, what is it that we want out of our country? I mean, we say a lot, like, we want to reduce violence, we want to make school better, but we say a lot of really vague things. So what is it that we're pushing for, That the goals and the milestones that we want for ourselves and for our country? And it might be different per person, but um, most people want the best for other people. Um, and I think that's something that we lose sight of a lot. So how do we 
I guess we have to um, find out for ourselves how we can best help each other before we can really help ourselves as a nation. Um, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Beautiful. May I ask the same question uh, of you? What, what comes to mind when I say that, Sydney? So I think there are different levels of what our duties are. Um, but I would say starting at like an individual level, I think one of the most important duties that we have is to keep ourselves educated, um, not only with academic things, but with like current events and what's going on in the world. Because if we don't know what's going on with, in the world, then we're, we're oblivious to it all and we can't change anything. And so I think our number one duty to ourselves, like on an individual level, is just to stay up to date on what's happening so that we can form valid opinions about, um, about what we think and not be told by others what we should think, but actually develop our own sense of, of, um, of what we do think. And, and then I think there comes the community level. And I think on a community level, we have the duty to show up to um, council, city council meetings. I mean, how many people actually go to city council meetings um, when it's something they care about? Usually a lot. But then when it's something that maybe they don't think really applies to them directly, then I see less and less people coming to city council meetings. And I think that it's those meetings that that really is where we can make change. And if no one shows up, then we don't have the community voice, which means there's a select few who get to decide what's going on in our community. And I think that that overall is is going to be a big problem because then when they do make a decision and people don't like that, then they're going to them complaining when in reality they had the choice to show up and be a part of that decision in the first place. And so I think that we have a duty to our community to be active in in different situations and in city council meetings and to really just focus on that as well. Yes, yes. What do you say, Hunter? I think that on a personal level, just like Sydney said, would be to would be to um, gain personal knowledge about the different topics at hand. And I also believe that on a community level like Sydney, that to show up to meetings is extremely important. And I, w- I would say that on a state level or even on a federal level that s- getting involved in politics is very important because if we don't get involved in politics, then they then the, our leaders don't know what we want. And so whether it's by sending letters and emails to representatives and senators or by personally showing up to um, to government meetings and being able to state your opinion. And I think that using our right to free speech is very important. Have you ever had the chance to talk about this question with your parents or anybody else? Um, Yes, I have. And they've supported me in this. I've been able to intern up at the state capitol for two years um, with the Utah Eagle Forum. And I've been able to help lobby bills that promote the family and other things that I believe in. So you you felt like that was your duty and you were carrying out your duty in that way. Yes. How did that feel? It felt pretty great, especially like it's it's even greater greater when when because of you that they are they change what they're going to do. Have you ever discussed this with your parents or adults or anyone? 
I've talked to a few different people about it, not extensively, but I think they all bring it back to that we have a duty just to stay informed and to be knowledgeable about what's happening in the world. Because when we don't know what's happening in the world, then things happen that we wouldn't really appreciate. And so I think on a basic level that that's kind of the the theme that it all revolves around. Mm, it all comes back to that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever discussed this with your parents or, or anyone else, Gwen Liam? Yeah. And I think one thing for sure, um, as Hunter was saying, that people need to be involved in politics. Actually, you both said um, things about that, about being informed and being in politics. And I think one thing is that um, public trust in the government has gone down so much and they don't trust the government to listen to them. Um, and what they believe in when they are informed in politics. Like if you look at the polls, it's gone down dramatically in the last 20 years, how much people believe in the government, how much people trust the government. But I think often we forget that we are the government on on a certain level, um, and we are the people that are making the change and that need to talk to people and tell them what we believe in, even if we're afraid to do so. I was just uh, doing my, my air <laughs> clapping over here. Um, thank you for those for those comments. I want to ask you also, um, oh, let's see, I'm just uh, looking at the time and, and knowing I can't ask. There's never a time to ask you everything I want to. Um, oh, I've always wanted to, I wanted to just sort of take a poll, um, if you would allow me to. Is it possible to ask this question, what do you wish that your parents or teachers or old people like me, <laughs> um, what do you wish that we understood about you and your generation that we don't seem to? Is that a fair question, Hunter? I mean, I know that there are things about my kids I don't get, but they will never explain them to me. So I am preying upon you as a person I don't know very well <laughs> to see, would you share with me, to, for, the, for the edification of the audience, what are some things that we don't understand that you wish we did? I think one of the biggest things is that teenagers are capable of doing a lot more things than most people realize. Like, the word teenager didn't even exist, like, less than 50 years ago. And there, in in our nation's history, there have been people who at age at the ages we, that we now associate with teenager were doing amazing things like there there was a naval captain in the revolutionary war that was only 14 maybe 16 years old and he was able to win battles and george washington as a surveyor was able at a young age to go and by himself and survey large areas of land and even even just in the past couple of years like we have we have gone from a nation that really respects like younger people and knows that they can do a lot to kind of taking the responsibility away from them and treating them instead of um, instead of citizens as more of consumers. Why do you think that is? I think a small portion of that is ourselves and how we tr- sometimes we do try to shirk responsibility, but I also think that if if other people aren't willing to give us responsibility, then we don't. Then we won't learn how to manage responsibility, how to take responsibility, and that's something that we need to be taught. I think that's brilliant. Thank you for that. Can I ask you that general question, Sydney? What do we not get that you wish we did? I think that one of the biggest things that maybe adults aren't getting about teenagers is that low expectations don't help us. Um, 
I think a lot of people, like Hunter was saying, they associate teenagers with kind of, you know, naive, almost stupid in a way, people who just haven't figured out their life and they don't know anything and they need help and they're just not, they're not very successful yet. And I think that putting those labels on us is not doing us any favors and it's really just, it's making it harder for us to feel like we are valid. Um, we are valid and we're we're able to accomplish good things. So I think that low expectations and saying, oh, they're just a teenager isn't doing us any favors and that we need to be held to just maybe not the same standards as as regular adults, but to similar standards because we are going to be adults very soon and we need to be able to transition from being a teenager to being an adult. And I think that just getting rid of the stigma around the word teenager is what's going to to be the most effective. Mm, mm, Brilliant. Over to you, Gwenlian. This is a little bit of a different take on it, but I think one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently um, is the fact that I can be very responsible and mature in certain situations, and in other situations, I'll just let it go and be a kid. And that's the word teenager. You know, you're in between. You're going from being a kid to being an adult. Um, and I think a lot of the times, <laughs> I'll just be, you know, I'll be goofing off with my friends. I'll be doing something silly. I won't be doing something that really has a lot of impact on other people's lives. And people might look at that and think, oh, you know, she's really irresponsible. She's really immature. But it's not that I'm immature. Um, I am capable of accomplishing things that adults can and like Hunter and Sydney said um, having that great responsibility um, and impact on the world but we also are still growing you know and um, we're not going to be the same in every situation that you see us in and you know it's funny that I think about people at my age and and we're not going to be responsible in every situation so you're not unlike your parents and grandparents generations in that regard I don't know anyone who is completely responsible in all (laughs) situations so thank you for those three very uh, thoughtful perspectives Um, I want to ask you a question before the time is gone about this survey that I saw just today and I haven't given you really any time to reflect on it so I just want to ask you if this rings true uh, in your experience this was a survey done by Common Sense Media of 1,600 kids in the U.S. between the ages of 8 and 18. And it shows that online video usage has just gone through the roof for kids in those age groups between 8 and 18, that it's basically doubled. So for kids watching online videos, um, let's see, from 8 to 12-year-olds, it's gone from um, for kids who've watched videos every day from 24 to 56%, and for 13 to 18-year-olds, 34 to 69%. But let's let's go to see how much time you guys spend watching videos. And I'm not sure if it's different from, from you know, that and your parents, but on it, average, the survey found 8 to 12-year-olds are on their screens just under five hours a day. For teenagers, you're spending on average just under seven and a half hours a day. Does that ring true to you, Hunter? Um, I, I can definitely see it in like the people around me and in for myself as well. I, I don't think that, that it's healthy, but I also think that it also depends on what they're using that for, because if it's just entertainment, then yeah, I do not think that spending five to seven and a half hours a day on watching videos is healthy at all. But I think like a half hour to an hour of time, like watching educational videos, uh, learning how to do something, like learning how to make something. I think that's healthy and beneficial in the extreme. 
But I don't think that even with educational, that we need to spend five hours even on our screens and that we need to spend more time outside. Do you like television? Yes, I do. So you watch videos and TV, not just videos? Yes, a little. Um, so I'm just curious about that because literally when I try and get my kids to watch TV with me, they're not interested unless it's on YouTube. I, I I have a very difficult time getting them to be interested. They'll want to show me videos, but if I want to try and get them to watch TV with me, they'll assume it's not interesting, even if it's the same video. It's like where the content comes from is relevant to them. Does that is that speak any truth to you or no? I I think a little bit because there are some things that my parents um, want me to watch with them that I think are really fun. Like sometimes they'll come to me with like a fun movie, and I'll enjoy that. And then other times it's like a movie that I really don't enjoy and I don't want I don't want to watch that. Yeah. But then there's also like there's videos that I think are really cool that I want to share with them and often they're they're pretty open to that. Hmm. So tell me about what you think about this survey. So, so I think it's it's kind of it's really interesting to to see that such like the numbers have gone up so so much over the past few years, especially with the younger generation. You know, with these twelve-year-olds spending five hours a day on on their their screens, and I think that the reason that maybe this has gone up is that more and more kids are looking towards social media to get their their outlets of social interaction, and so I think that instead of using their their screens for productive things. They're going there to find their entertainment, to find their social interaction with people instead of actual human connection. Right. So instead of talking on the phone like we might have in my day, they're on Instagram. They're yeah. instant messaging or texting. Does that? I wonder if that counts in the survey. I don't know because I don't have the, the – but that might count in the survey for screen time. I'm not sure. Or watching videos as they're scrolling uh, through Instagram. What, what do you think, Gwenlian? Um, that's actually something I have noticed in my life with the young people around me. <laughs> I feel I have to check myself sometimes. I'll like, there'll be one of my younger siblings or one of their friends. And, um, there's a particular family that I know and they have, their kids all have these little watches that they can call their parents on, things like that. And <laughs> I'll be like, oh, when I was your age, I hadn't even <laughs> ever used a smartphone. And then I think about it, I'm like, That's wait, funny. I'm 16, yourself, calm yeah. down. <laughs> um, but that is definitely interesting because videos and television, oddly, are not really something that ever appealed to me. I have used social media and the internet, um, obviously. But it is interesting, and I have seen it also among younger people, that they will watch, like, a lot of YouTube and a lot of videos. Um, and I guess it's something that I'm trying hard to understand because it never really applied to me that much. But it's definitely interesting that in such a short period of time, the numbers of people that are, the numbers of young people that are using media like that has gone up so drastically. Like, um, I think you said that 67, 66% of people 13 to 18 said they got on their screens and watched videos every day, mm -hmm. which is just mind-blowing that it's happened in such a short period of time. Like, if you had said 20 years, I'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, mm -hmm. you know, it doubles in 20 years, but four years, right. that's incredible. And so those of us who are in the business of producing content, even news content, have to find a way to reach your generation 
And it's changing so fast that we're not exactly sure um, how to do that. I know the time is gone, so I can't keep you any longer. I just want to say thank you and, and ask you, will you come back and see me again, please? Yes, please, please. Absolutely. And will yeah. you as well, Hunter? All right. This is Through Their Eyes here on KSL News Radio. We'll see you next week.